everybody as we make our way back to our seats. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Romans chapter 6. Or if you just want to read along on the screen, if you're in an angle there where you can see it, or your app, or whatever you choose to do. Uh, we've just finished a, kind of an extended series on Meals with Jesus in the book of Luke. But today, as many of you know, after our gathering, we'll be uh, headed down to the river to, to do baptisms. And so it seemed like a, a fitting and appropriate time for us to look into the scriptures about what our baptism points us to. And there's, there's a lot of confusion around baptism in some of our circles. Uh, for many, it's just an, an empty ritual, you know, sort of like a rite of passage, like an initiation. And we believe that the gospel of God's word has a, a, better, a better truth for us to embrace when it comes to that. And so this morning, we want to, to look into God's word and to see how... The Holy Spirit inspired uh, the Apostle Paul to point the early church to baptism, not merely as a, a rite, but as a recognition of who they were in Christ. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. We're, we won't cover every bit of it this morning, but before we do so, I just wanted to read from Matthew 28, just to, to remind us of the mission Jesus has given us. And he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that you've given us and that we've been able to sing. We give thanks to you for you are good. We confess our need to you because you are enough. And we praise you that through your grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have been made alive by your grace. We are saved. And Father, we ask you now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to these truths, not as some same old, same old church talk, 
but it's the power for us to live lives in this broken world as people who still deal with the remaining sin. That you would give us, Lord, an extra measure of faith today to believe the truth you tell us about who you are and who we are in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, he wanted to be a doctor his whole life because after all, that's what his parents were. Recently was able to hear a, a, a teacher, a professor who had a PhD from a very prestigious university in England teach on some of the finer points of scripture. And in the middle of, of his teaching, he, he alluded to the fact that he had quite a, a dramatic story behind how he had got to the place where he was in his life. But what was very frustrating for me is he never told us that story. He just kept saying, well, another time I'll tell you this. Well, I'm sure this hasn't uh, been nagging at any of your hearts because you weren't there, but I finally found out the answer to the story. It begins with the fact that he was adopted at a very young age. But he was made aware of the fact that he was adopted as soon as he was of an age to understand it. And what the story that he had told was that his parents gave him up for adoption because they were both doctors. And because they were doctors early in their career, uh, getting their, their feet on the ground, their career lifted up, that they, they just didn't have time to raise a young baby. And so he, he grew up uh, understanding this, and although he was, you know, a wild child in some respects, got into some trouble like all kids do, aggravated his Sunday school teachers, he lived into this story of, of where he came from and of who he was. He did very well in school and in life, again going on to, to get this very prestigious degree and Ph.D. But it was only later in life that he found out after the, all the degrees and all the success the truth about where he came from. That his mother was not a doctor, but she was actually a stripper. And that his biological dad was not a doctor, but likely a relative of his mother. And so he was born as a product of an incestuous relationship. Now, as shocked as we might be to hear this right now, imagine how shocked he was. And he couldn't help but realize how different his life might have been or could have been if that would have been how he had framed who he was from the start. You see, where we look for our identity is powerful. What we believe about who we are, whose we are, and where we came from can make all the difference in how we go about living our lives, the dreams we dream, the steps we take, the faith that we embrace. What he remembered about who he was was very powerful in shaping who he became, and the same thing is true of us. Where do we look to see where we are? What do we remember? We live in a country and in a culture where Americans are sort of obsessed with this question of identity. So if you're new with us, sometimes we think out loud. Where do we see in our, in our society, in our culture, in our art, in our, in our entertainment, this obsession with discovering our identity? What are some examples? 
Oh, yeah, Enneagram, personality test, right? Everybody wants to, to, to know, you know, help give me some bearings on why I act this way and relate with people this way. What else? Where do we see this? DNA test. Mari Povich, if y'all remember who he is. What else? What? Denominations, yeah, so we may look back to a particular church background that we come from. Social media. Media. Television. What are some examples of some movies or streams of movies? For Victoria, what were you going to say? Yeah, or race or ethnicity. Yeah, we, we see this in Disney movies too, don't we? Any kind of thing. Like it's, it's just like discovering your identity, finding out who we are. And as followers of Jesus, we are not an exception to this. But the thing is, is that we have a better and more true story to point people to. And yet so often as followers of Jesus, we, we can get our bearings off to where we begin to look to things other than the things that God calls us to look to, to know who we are and to remember who we are. And rarely, if ever, maybe in your life, have you heard a phrase like this when it came to a point in your life when you had an identity crisis. And here's the phrase. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. When you doubt who you are, when you doubt whose you are, when you doubt what is yours. This is exactly what we find happening in the New Testament, especially in Romans 6. But even throughout the whole Bible, as Israel is called to remember who they are, what are they pointed back to? They're pointed back to God's deliverance of them from Israel from Egypt and them being passed through these waters that would be a picture to come of one who would bring them through a greater exodus and a greater deliverance, a greater rescue from a greater judgment. In verses 1 and 2, if you notice in the text, Paul asks, how could we who have died to sin live in it? Paul is not addressing this issue of remaining sin in their lives by saying, stop it. He's not, a, he's not a telling them, here's you a new list of rules. He's not telling you to do better and to try harder. No, what he says here is that knowing who you are in Jesus changes everything. That grace doesn't just change your status. Grace changes your identity. Grace changes your story. Grace changes who you really are. And where are we pointed to see what's happened in us through our union with Jesus? We're pointed to our baptism. Because baptism doesn't mark the beginning of our perfection. But baptism marks the beginning of our union with Jesus, who was perfect for us. The early church was going to get immersed in the fire of following Jesus. As we read in the book of Acts and through the letters that we find in the New Testament, we will see that as they learned what it meant to follow Jesus in this world, it would reveal their need and their sin. But it would also lead to great suffering. But what would hold them as their sin was, was brought to bear and as their suffering 
was poured upon them was the fact that they had already been set apart through Jesus Christ. As Israel, through the water of the Exodus, received their identity for their journey through the wilderness and into the kingdom, and as Jesus himself embarked on his public mission and ministry, went to the waters and received his Father's affirmation, so the early church, under the command of Jesus, would immerse their followers into Christ to signify that they are His. So that they would have a tangible reminder of what they had already experienced through the work of Christ. So if we are to not only know who we are in Jesus, but to grow up into who we are in Jesus, then we must remember our baptism. We're going to think in a few ways this morning. When do we need to remember our baptism? We need to remember it when our sin feels so defining. When our sin tells us to lie, this is who you are. We need to remember it when our sin feels so defeating. That is when our sin or our suffering says, this is, this, this is just it. There's nothing greater you can become. And we also need to remember it when our sin or our suffering feels so determining. As if our future is just set, life just is the way it is, who cares, why even try? The first thing we remember our baptism when our sin seems so defining. We see in verse 3 that Paul is saying, this, 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 did you forget? Don't you know this? Don't you remember who you are in Christ? Has the gospel only been a good news message that you've received in your head? That you've assented to as a theory or a doctrine? But never has it invaded and enlightened the depth of your heart? Who doesn't remember this good news he's about to restate? It's the person who quits on Jesus and his church because of their sins. Maybe secret sins and failures. It's the father who, who fades out of leading his family because he continues to seemingly drop the ball. Or the mom who is bitter towards God over her continued critical personality. It's the one who's leaning on every form of alternative refuge from, from alcohol abuse to prescription drug abuse to food abuse, to pleasure, or to some other relationship to just give them something that tells them who they are when it feels like they're nothing. It's the one who entered maybe this morning into this place of worship with your head hanging low because you assume that God only really wants to be with you when you have had a good week before Him. It's the one who defines their life by their sin. Whether that be an abortion, a divorce, or the disobedience, or anything other than the cross. What had they forgotten, and what have we forgotten when we feel like it's our sin that defines who we are? We've forgotten that we have already been united into the death of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Into Christ Jesus. This is no mere transaction. 
This is an immersion and engulfing into union with Him. Into His death. It's a union and engulfing into His death. Do you realize that this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have already been judged for your sin. You've already died. You've already been tried for your sins and you were found guilty, but the good news is that you have already passed through judgment when you united to the judgment that Jesus took on for you. This is what our baptism tells us as we go under that, those waters. You have died. Judgment has been But not just the penalties paid, but that old false you is death. That old adaptive you, that you that you just found out that you had to be so that you could get along in this world and survive. It's not you anymore. Now certainly when Paul points to baptism, he is pointing here to more than just this symbolic and significant act of going into the water. He's talking about something so much deeper, a spiritual baptism that is distinct from the physical act. As we see the thief on the cross is welcomed into paradise even though he doesn't pass through the waters. But we see that the, the, the normal pattern that the early church was called to follow and we as followers of Jesus as is to display that inward reality through this outward act that gives us then this tangible means of grace that we can always look back to to remember that that old us is dead. We are no longer under the penalty that it requires. This is why Paul also says in Galatians 3.27 that as many as you as have been baptized have put on Christ. The old you is not the real you because you have been baptized into the death of Jesus. Many of you have heard me use this example or illustration, but I'm going to say it again because it's so good from, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he talks about uh, this, this analogy, as it were, in the time of American history when there was slavery. And he talks of the, this... Uh, just, just imagine with me, of someone who lived their life in, in this field. Say, here's this blue line, if you can see it. They're on this side of the line. They're a slave to a master. And, and they, they think of themselves and who they are and their identity in terms of this, this debt that they owe to him because they own him. And, and, and they're told all their life, you're nothing. You have to do what I say. You have no identity apart from me. And filled with such shame, they live out of this identity that they're told is theirs. But then one day, on the other side of this line, as it were, the other side of the road, this, this, this good master, this good Lord, pays this great price to purchase them and to bring them onto this side of the road, into this good field, and, and tells them, guess what? On this side, in this field, you're no longer a slave. You're free. And not only am I purchasing you to work in my fields, 
I'm going to adopt you and make you my child. Now everything that I have is yours. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer under that story of shame. You are mine. And all that I have is yours. Now as good as that news is, the gospel is greater. But here's the catch. What that person had to do is what we have to do is now live in this field while this field still exists. And while this master over here is continually seeing you out enjoying your life in the father's field and is saying, hey, you know what? I know who you really are. They may not want to talk about it over there with their whole pie in the sky philosophy, but I know what you've done. I know what you're thinking right now. Why are you even trying? And as you seek to live out this new identity, of course you fail. And of course you fall. Because you don't know what it's like to live in such freedom. But the way that you move forward is not by doing better and trying harder. It's by reminding yourself that you are not that person anymore. It's by believing the voice of the Father in whom field that you now live and who He says you are and what He has done for you. When our sin seems so defining, we have to remember that our baptism tells us the old you is not the real you, however strong that presence may feel. Not old sin, not remaining sin, not future sin, not the lust, not the jealousy, not the anger. Not old suffering, new suffering, past suffering, the rejection, the isolation, not an old community, a remaining community, a future one that threatens you with rejection or isolation. But you remember that when you went under those waters that God was showing you, you are no longer guilty. You are no longer slave. You are no longer under shame. And you no longer have to be that you. But not only do we remember our baptism when our sin seems so defining, but we also need to remember it when it seems so defeating. Notice verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What is he saying is that the, the union that we have with Jesus in his death is not the end. Now we are a church that wants to underline the work of Jesus through the cross, but the gospel is not just the gospel of the cross. The gospel is the gospel of a resurrection and of a kingdom. We were united in his death so that, in order that, we would be raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just die for you, he rose for you. Jesus didn't just go under judgment, he came up out of it, alive. And so we don't just go under the water, we come up. That would not be good news if in our baptisms today, I take them under the water and we just say, all right. 
No, it's only good news. It's only a gospel if we come up from the grave. If Jesus stayed under the water, all he was was a good example to us of love. If Jesus stays under the water, all he was was maybe a model of some kind of path to, to liberation against some type of oppressive government. But because Jesus comes up out of the water, death is defeated, the devil is defeated, and sin has been atoned for. We cannot make our union with Christ just a one-way union. We do well to remember the cross and, and wear jewelry and such and art that reminds us. But as I prepared for this, I couldn't help but think, why are there not more empty tomb necklaces? Or empty tomb earrings? Maybe it just wouldn't work artistically. I don't know. I can't even really imagine what that would look like. But we are an empty tomb people. You are not dead. You might feel like a corpse some days, but in Jesus Christ, do you not remember you are resurrected? You are empowered to walk in the newness of life. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in you. This is not me giving you some kind of positive thinking pep talk. This is the Word of God. This is the good news of the Gospel. Our baptism reminds us Jesus will not leave us under the water. Jesus will not let us drown. Jesus will not call us to a life that He will not through His Spirit empower us to live. One author said it this way, that Christ, that Jesus has made us for this life of growth and holiness. That it's a reality for us and a possibility for us. And he compares it to teaching his son to ride a bicycle. And I was so tempted as a preacher just to make this story mine because I taught all my kids to ride bikes. And it was very similar. At first they're terrified. And as, you, and as you call them to ride the bike and you walk beside them, behind them with your hand on the, the back of the seat and your hand on the, uh, on the, on the handlebar, I'm going to say steering wheel. That's like, I know that's wrong. <laughs> we have really awesome bikes. But uh, you walk behind them and, and they're terrified and so what do they do? They're trying to ride the bike but they keep turning around, don't they? You can't ride a bike if you keep looking back. So he said it this way. You can't move forward if you're always anxiously checking behind you. I just want to say that again. Let's let it sit. You can't move forward if you're always anxiously checking behind you. If you're always looking back to say, can I do this? Can I do this? Then you're not going to make any progress. You've got to trust, Dad's got me. So he says, when Jack was able to hear my voice, I've got you, I've got you. And he could trust that I was right there. Then he was able to move forward in confidence. Dad's got me. He said, one of the reasons why our growth is so scary or unattractive is we see it as a bar that we can never reach. Or it's just one more thing that we're going to fail to do. And we do fail we do fall. And when we do, 
sadly, even in the church or especially, we fear that God is disappointed in us, that he's scowling at us. So what do we want to do? We want to jump off the bike and go run and hide. These were his words. How can we remember that dad's got me? What reminds you that he is right there with you? That his love and affection for you will not change when you fall off your bike. That if anything, it grows warmer. And that he doesn't run from you or want you to run from him. That he actually rushes to you in compassion. We remember our union with Christ. And how do we remember that? At least in Romans 6, Paul says we remember our baptism. Your baptism reminds you that God is for you that much. We remember the words that Jesus heard when he came up from the water. It says the heavens opened and a voice came down and it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit came upon him and empowered him now to live the life that God called him to live. Do you realize this morning that if you were in Jesus Christ, that on your best days and on your worst days, that is what the Father says over you? This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Do you think he's standing there with his hands crossed, thinking, there they go again, what's the point? No, because when he sees you, he sees Jesus. And he is saying over you right now, singing over you, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. It seems too good to be true. That's why Paul's having to say this. Because he knows their assumption is going to be, well, then I guess I can live however I want. But he's saying, no, when you get this, it actually changes how you live. You're no longer living for God out of your guilt, shame, and fear. Now you're actually beginning to live out of God, out of the identity you have as his child. We think our change is impossible. Why even try? You want to talk about impossibility? How about resurrection from the dead? Do you believe that God has raised you from the dead? Or do you think that he was merely your sort of co-pilot in your self-redemption story? When you believe that God has already raised you from the dead, guess what? Nothing gets harder after that. When you believe that he's giving you the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit, then yes, you will fail. Yes, you will fall. But your father will never fail. He'll never quit on you. We could say so much more, but we remember our baptism when our sin feels so defining, when it feels so defeating, but lastly, when it feels so determining. So not only do we have a hard time dealing with our past, we have a hard time dealing with our present, but when we're having a hard time dealing with our future, we're thinking, wow, the trajectory set for my life based on 
how I feel I am and who I feel I am looks bleak. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. He's saying if this is true, our spiritual baptism into union with Christ displayed in our physical baptism as a picture of that union with Christ. If that's true, then our full future resurrection and completion into who God has made us to be is secure. Our baptism doesn't just tell us about our past or our present, but also our future. Our baptism reminds us that we serve a God and we've been united with a Savior and has a kingdom that one day will eradicate the very presence of sin from this world and the good news, the very presence of sin in our life altogether. We will be fighting sin and suffering in this world as long as we live. We will not do that as the defeated children, people, though. We will do this as the victorious children of God who have the Spirit of God. And it will be hard, but we do it knowing one day that fight's going to be over. One day you will not wrestle with that anger anymore. One day you will be not tempted to indulge that lust. One day you will not hear the voice of the enemy whispering into your ear, Hath God really said? And your current battle with sin doesn't change the fact that the victory has already been won. Someone wrote of Martin Luther, the great reformer, who we know uh, did not want us to see baptism as a work that we attributed our righteousness to, understood, though, the power of what our baptism points to. One person writes of his experience of this and says, our doubts and defeats overwhelm us. One person who knew this doubting quite well, who struggled with doubt and defeat his whole life was that famous reformer Martin Luther. Over the course of his life, Martin Luther suffered with great bouts of anxiety and depression and attacks by the devil. He would have crisis of faith so severe that even, even he, who many looked to as a hero, doubted his own salvation. And at times he became so frightened through visions of Satan standing before him, ready to usher him into the gates of hell. And so you know what, you know what Luther did to battle this? It says he put a plaque up in his room that said, Remember your baptism. Luther understood the fact of his baptism was much stronger than any doubt or any, or any anxiety could produce. It is said that his, because his bouts of depression were so severe, he would sometimes just be walk around heard repeating, I am baptized! I am baptized! So we say today, remember your baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But in your baptism is symbolized and signified this most important truth. You are greatly loved by God. He has called you by name. He has resurrected you from the dead. He finds great delight in you. And nothing can separate you from that truth. Your baptism is a sign of that. So when in your youth you feel overwhelmed with a world that scoffs at your faith, 
remember your baptism. When in your middle age you start to realize, he says, as I have, and I can relate, that you're probably about on the downhill side of life. There's fewer years left than you've lived. And you haven't accomplished all that you thought you would, and you probably won't. And a sense of disappointment starts to creep in. Remember your baptism. When you hit those senior years and you see your friends and spouses leave this world and realize that your years are coming close to an end, and you begin to worry about what follows, remember your baptism. When we all wonder, what's the point and what good are we really trying to accomplish in living as the church? And we all ask, is this worth it? Remember your baptism. Our sin and our suffering does not determine our future, our union with Christ does. None like that PhD we begun with. Our hope is not found in someone else giving us a fake story or an empty symbol, but it's in being reminded right now of who we are in Christ. Your past may seem like something you'd just like to forget, and your present may seem like something that you'd like to avoid, and your future may totally be something you think you would just be better off to escape. But the word of the gospel says you are in Christ. That's who you are. The table that we're about to come to, as we see the body and the blood of Jesus represented in the bread and the cup, tells us it's finished. There's no condemnation for you. And our baptisms tell us we are alive. When sin seems so defining, so defeating, and so determining, let's remember our baptism. Father, we thank you that you've given us tangible signs to remember your kingdom promises. And we pray now, God, as we come to your table in response to your word, that you would help us, God, to remember that you are for us, and if you are for us, who can stand against us? In Jesus' name. If you're new with us, uh, this may feel a little strange to you. We hope it doesn't in the wrong way, and if it does in the right way, that's okay. Is Each week we respond with an invitation from Jesus to his table. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. We'll stand uh, in three sections around these three tables, and we will uh, take the bread as a picture of Jesus' body given for us. We'll dip it into the cup as a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And we will do this not as people who have lived lives deserving of the favor of God this week. We will do this as people who are completely needy of Jesus' work on our behalf. We will not do this as people who are attending Jesus' funeral, who have to scrunch our faces up and feel sorry for him. We will do this as those who believe that Jesus is risen and we are victorious. And that the finished work of Christ is ours. So we will encourage one another. We will share things. And we're going to take a moment to reflect on this. We're going to ask the Spirit to, to help us. We'll share ways we may need to repent and believe this week. Ways we need to ask for healing or help. 
We may just share good news about what we're learning about how much God loves us. Or we may just share a particular word or, or, a, or a picture that the Spirit might give us to encourage someone. But at this time, if we would just bow our heads, close our eyes, we want to create a, a couple moments of space to reflect and ask the Spirit to give us words to share with one another as we come to the table. So Father, now give us, Lord, your encouragement by your Spirit to receive and share with others.